Welcome to Choosing Leadership, a podcast for high performers with big dreams and for leaders who know that they are more powerful than the level that they are currently playing. I am Sumit Gupta, your host and the founder CEO of the Deploy Yourself School of Leadership. I am here to help the best leaders get better and to help organizations massively improve their output and impact and at the same time eradicating workplace stress. Yes completely eradicating not just reducing completely eradicating i believe in creating a future and a work culture where people wait for mondays not fridays and get to do their most meaningful work the aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content but instead shift the context under which you operate this podcast is titled choosing leadership because that is what leadership is a choice In each episode I will celebrate leaders who have made such choices which are not always easy and comfortable but which has helped them get to where they are today. And let us celebrate the leader in us for choosing to move over our fears, for choosing to be motivated by something bigger than ourselves and for choosing to deal with every challenge that comes on the way. Let us celebrate you right now for stepping into the unknown and taking courageous action as those were the moments when you chose leadership at the end i will share how you can be our next guest on this podcast and with that let's get started dr rachel o'connell is the founder and ceo at trust elevate in the interview rachel unveils her journey from forensic psychology analyzing pedophile activity to finding trust elevate She passionately discusses the challenges faced by her startup, emphasizing the struggle for investment as a female founder. Her narrative blends optimism, resilience, and a very strong belief in herself, painting a vivid picture of her mission to protect children online. Hi Rachel, welcome to the Choosing Leadership podcast. Hey Sumit, how are you doing? I'm doing very well and it's uh, wonderful to have you with us today. for our listeners can you maybe start by sharing a little bit of who you are and what keeps you busy these days okay so my name is dr rachel o'connell and i am the founder and ceo of trust elevate we're an early stage startup and what we do is we solve the unsolvable problem online of knowing who is a child who's a parent who's an adult who is a teen and why is this important because there's a lot of regulations right that require companies to know the ages of their users so they create can create safer spaces philip burley at google describes the next era of the internet as age aware and consent driven mm. and the thing that's driving that summit is a whole raft of regulations data protection regulations that require companies to get yours and my consent but also get consent from a parent before they can process say a 4 year old's data So I'm super excited about Trust Elevate and what we're doing and our mission. So we're a for-profit but purpose-led company, right? Because when platforms know the ages of their users, they can create safer spaces. And every day in the news you're hearing about the kind of bad things that can happen to kids online, being exposed to inappropriate content, stuff that promotes self-harm, suicide, and then mm-hmm. there adults with the sexual interest in children so there are many challenges which are impeding children's ability to get the maximum positive out of the internet yeah yeah 
And right. yeah, before we dive deeper into that, what led you to this, like choosing this uh, as a challenge or as a problem? Where do the dots connect in your oh, background, in your history? Yeah. You got to go all the way back to the mid to late 90s. I started my PhD and it was looking at, it was in forensic psychology, analyzing pedophile activity on the internet and looking at the implications for investigative strategies. And it was part of this pan-European project. So I worked with the Belgian police, the Dutch, and the Netherlands, where you are, and the Gardaí, the Irish police, Gardaí Siakona, as they're called, and the pedophile unit in Scotland Yard. And at that time, this is in the time of Usenet news groups and uh, see chat rooms. So I examined the structure and social organization of pedophile How are they connecting with each other? What are they saying? Then the other study was looking at their collections of child abuse images and seeing if we could use statistical techniques to analyze that so that it might give you an indication of victimology. Who might their victims be? And then looking at grooming, how do they groom children? So I posed as an 8, 10 or 12 year old little girl whose parents were divorced. I'd moved to a new school and I was a bit unhappy. In other words, quite vulnerable. And then just mapped how the conversations would take place. Mm. So it was during that phase that I realized, oh my God, the just sheer scale of the risks and harms to children's well-being. And then in 2000, I changed because this, I changed to the other side, which is how do we develop programs of education to teach kids, their parents, social workers, teachers, everybody who's responsible for them, give them the tools and the skills and the kind of knowledge to navigate the internet safely. So the European Commission, again, funded my research and I set up the first um, UK Internet Safety Centre, one in Ireland, not just me, like a team. We had a Mm -hmm. team of people with some extraordinary education, PhD people, super smart people. And we had one in Spain and that eventually turned into 19 centers across Europe. And what we're trying to do is create programs of education and then measure the rates of knowledge acquisition and see if there was behavior change so we could tailor the programs of research. And that was a fascinating piece of work. And then I was on the couch of BBC Breakfast News because I was an internet safety, internet safety knowledgeable person. They called him expert. And I met the founder of Bebo, a social networking site. His name was Michael Birch. And the quest, the interviewer, I think it was Dearwood Murnahan, was saying, oh, is social networking, it was a new set of words to put together. Is it going to make kids more or less at risk online? And Bebo was actually based on kids connecting via their school. So they were connecting with their school friends and chatting with them. So I laid out the benefits of that and the potential risks. And afterwards, Michael asked if he could hire me because he was like, oh, we think we're doing everything. His son at the same time was, just, was the same age as my daughter at the time. He seemed like a genuine person. He said, we're doing ABCD. I said, but you could also do EDFG, these other things. So he asked me to join the team. And Summit, that was such an exciting thing to do, to join a tech startup. I think it was the fifth person to join the company and we helped to operationally build that business and work with regulators and law enforcement and all the key stakeholders. I became convinced during that time we need to know the ages of the users 
um, so we can create safer spaces. Um, we were acquired by AOL. And then I dedicated my time after that for the last 15 years to solving that problem. I'm a government advisor to the UK government on this whole issue, wrote a white paper for them about how you could solve the problem, was recruited by the British Standards Institution. They were like, okay, if you think you can write a technical standard that could be applicable worldwide, do it, right? It's like, okay. So I got to work with some of the most amazing smart people on the identity and privacy kind of area. We put our heads together. It was supposed to be for nine months. It was a bit longer. So we developed the PAS, a publicly available specification, 1296 age checking code of practice. How can you check ages? How can you? So an identity attribute of mine is that I'm over 18. Another one is that I'm a parent. So how can you check those attributes in a privacy preserving way? And I'm really happy to report that's now becoming an ISO, an international standard. So it's ISO 27566, Age Assurance Framework. So this, it's this, right? So you said to me, where is the genesis of this absolute passion? Why am I so driven? Yeah. It's from that research, analyzing pedophile activity and then mm -hmm. managing the abuse management systems and seeing the impact on kids of being exposed to negative content and bad people. So I do firmly believe that we can create as a mm. safe internet. Yeah, yeah. And how did that lead to you starting uh, Trust Elevate, right? Becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah. And how has that journey been? Oh my God, that's been extraordinary as well. So, uh, it's, so uh, Trust Elevate was a consultancy. So I was consulting with various companies, helping them with their strategies, building their business cases to help them to understand why it's, you know, it positively impacts on your bottom line if you build trust, right? So how do you determine and how do you quantify trust metrics? Because people, if you're selling a compliance or you're working, you're saying to companies, you need to comply with regulations, people are like, <laughs> so they may not find compliance exciting and they see it as a cost on their and an and, and, and overly burdensome cost. So trying to make that mind shift. So I wrote a number of white papers for the UK government and uh, I was presenting and the minister had to leave. The bell went off. They have to go and vote. And his uh, aide said to me, oh, we'll come back in six months for the next discussion. And I just thought, oh, how many kids are going to be harmed in that period of time? We, somebody needs to do something. And then I looked in the, when I went to the bathroom before I left and I looked in the mirror and said, you're just going to have to. You're just going to have to do something. We can't spend our lives thinking somebody else should do something. So I got together with my tech co-founder and we spent a whole afternoon in a Google Accelerator program on a whiteboard. I said, listen, I need this to be built so that we don't hold any data. We need to minimize to the absolute minimum number of data points that we need. And it needs to be usable by somebody who's not tech literate. It needs to be seamless. And we need to enable, we need to shift that balance of power. Because mm. so, there's an asymmetry of power between big tech and us as average users. Then we built an MVP and it's taken off from there. Yeah. Thank you for uh, sharing that. But as an entrepreneur, it's always, the journey is always full of surprises. Something uh, unexpected coming up. Can you share a bit more about like how has this journey been? Maybe share a couple of. Uh, difficult choices or decisions that you had to make on the way? 
Yes, absolutely. Let me start with the positive. I, I, you can, I think you can tell I'm like a glass half full <laughs> positive person. So just this morning, just this morning, I've been working with this lady, Emma Podbury, um, who is working to raise awareness of the impact on children from children's points of view and their parents. So she's been working with the United Nations. Um, we had a conference this morning. Uh, I was uh, um, moderating a panel session. So we had people from Kenya, India, Australia, so people from all over the world coming together to discuss this topic, right? There is a power in the collective when you feel that you can work with people, bringing people from a background with social work, technologists, AI people, victim support, everybody coming together saying, how can we help to sort out this problem? And then directly after that, and before this call, I was on the Microsoft, we were selected to be on the Microsoft Accelerator Program, Entrepreneurship for Positive Impact. Can you believe that? So we're working with Microsoft and they run, they put this entrepreneurship program together to help companies like ours that have big ambitions to make a positive impact and to figure out how they can support us. So on the positive side, it's been amazing things like that happen, yeah. which is really fantastic. On the challenging side, oh my goodness gracious me. <laughs> It is really tough. Do you know that only 2% of female founders get investment? Yes. Um, yeah. Right? I was surprised uh, by that statistic when somebody asked me. But yes, that's really a shocking statistic. It's really shocking. It's really shocking. And of course, the pandemic, etc. So uh, I'm the same as every other entrepreneur. We bootstrapped this endeavor. So it's been challenging at some points to, to keep uh, stuff going. And, and then you get negative feedback. Are, so that can be a challenge. There's a learning curve to understand the difference when you're doing a family and friends round versus a seed round versus where we are now pre-series A round. So there's a lot to learn. And as a founder, you have to be everything. You're doing the concept, the design, the passion, the product. Then you're the HR person. You're the bookkeeping person. You're just like everything, absolutely yeah. everything in your pitching and that can sometimes be a little bit exhausting, but also you just, what I've learned along the way is to, if you get knockbacks, just to, you just have to pick yourself up and say, okay, what can I learn from that? How do I incorporate that? So we've had to pivot our approach a few times. Um, for example, now we're working with channel partners like Microsoft, Azure, making our service available on these platforms. So to try and mit mitigate the concerns that people might have with working with a, an early stage startup. So it's been an extraordinary learning uh, journey. And I'm absolutely blessed because the people that are working with me are at times we haven't had, I haven't had money to pay, but they've stuck with this because they believe in this, right? And I have people like David Clark and my CISO. Do you look him up on, on LinkedIn? He's like really admired and respected for his depth of knowledge of security issues and data protection. So I'm, I'm just, yeah, that's been the extraordinary thing of people, the support that you have. Yeah. Yeah. I think that tells me the power of the purpose that you see in the future and that galvanizes people together more than like just the salary or the like the tangible components of working together. Yeah, but to draw that uh, challenge out, can you share maybe in the short term, in the next one year, 
what is what is it that you're looking uh, to achieve or create and what what is the biggest challenge or pain point in that consideration in the future so we've got our first customers so we're generating monthly recurring revenue i want to get some more customers on board so we're fostering those partnerships with channel partners as i said with telcos as well, it makes so much sense. Every parent has their mobile phone with them every single mm. moment of the day, especially when you've, when they're, if you don't get a message, oh, I'm home from school or whatever. So we're working with telcos to see if they will integrate our service as part of every mobile operator's a native app, like My O2, My Verizon. In there is a perfect place to put my family. And that's where you will manage your child's activities online. When you as a parent, you provide your child's first name, last name, date of birth. You need the parent's mobile number. We check and we verify, oh, someone is the parent of this child. Mm -hmm. So when the child goes to a website, they put in your mobile number. You get an in-app notification that your child wants to access that service. And you can say yes or no. We let the service know. A verified parent, none of your details go to the service the child's accessing. And they also know the age band. So it's a zero knowledge proof way to do that. So our challenge in the next year to bring in, we're seeking investment of 1.5 million. We want to bring, build on those partnerships get more customers, obviously, and then scale the, the business, bring in the right uh, additional people to support that growth. And then we need to expand our mission is global. So expand across to countries around the world work with key partners that can facilitate this and support. And what I want to do with the company as well, once we're generating a profit, I want a percentage of it to go back into community efforts to protect kids because there is a huge deficit and there's very little support that's out there for kids that have been harmed online, mental yeah. health support kind of things. So that's the kind of top level kind of, the, of what we yeah. want to achieve. Yeah. And what is the biggest pain point there? Is it is it the conversational part, right? Because I think this requires a lot of convincing or a lot of like talking about what you want to see different in the world. Is mm -hmm. it more on the like the business growth on the revenue side or is it more what you shared earlier, right? That like the conversation itself needs to happen. Right now, mm -hmm. if you talk about business world, it's uh, very much driven by what will give me the most revenue or what will yes. be, how should I prioritize like this versus all the other initiatives that my team is presenting me. So what comes up as the biggest bottleneck or as the biggest pain point that you see to make this happen? We had a massive pain point up until recently because companies were saying, this is great. You're a good person. Great. Carry on with your work. It's great. Mm. But until we're legally required to do to do this or until, no, so let me just correct that. Companies are legally required to do that. They've been investigated by regulators and a large global company recently appealed that to the European Court of Justice yeah. and basically said, hey, we don't have to get consent. We don't need to know anybody's age. We can rely on contract and legitimate interest as a basis for processing people's data. So go away, anybody asking us to know this. And then the European Court of Justice said, no, actually, let us tell you, you do need to obtain consent. And if you're going to obtain consent, you need to know the ages of the users. Mm. So finally, so the General Data Protection Regulation came into force in 2018. We are now the 15th of November, 2023. 
and it's taken that length of time. So yeah. the Supreme Court of Justice ruling was like last month. It's taken that period of time for it to be crystal clear mm. to companies. So we had to survive in between those the, that period oh. of time and build a business case. And there's a lot of education to do around this. We were working with Deloitte as well to think about those trust metrics. So what I've been doing in the meantime is building the business cases, as I mentioned. So you can see if you reduce churn by 1%, mm. that can make a huge impact on the business. And you look at year-on-year growth, or as a, there's one large company out there or two is talking, if you look at their SEC filings, mm. you can see that they're predicting a, a reduction in profit. So I think we're entering an era of the internet where we need a more equitable social contract between us as end users and big tech companies. And that's coming about. Yes. And what would you say are your top one or two strengths, which allows you to like take this forward, given all the challenges uh, and uh, difficulties on the way? <laughs> it's just an incredible amount. I'm surprised myself. There's just the sheer resilience. Mm. And no, I know this needs to happen. This just needs to happen. And there are so many regulatory drivers that are pushing towards this. And also there's a whole generation somewhat that have grown up now. And there are people like Emma Limbeck, who's running the design the internet for us, design it for us, activism kind of thing. Young people, they've only ever known the world with the internet. Mm. And they, so they've experienced firsthand the harms. And uh, yeah. right. So they're now a very vocal voice in terms of that kind of activism to put some pressure on. So I think those are the, it's, it's a whole combination of those sorts of things mm. and things like the Microsoft Entrepreneurship for Positive Impact that really help to galvanize and keep you going through the dark times. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you mentioned optimism earlier, and now you speak about resilience. And I think as founders, we all need that to continuously look for different ways, even if uh, like multiple doors are shut in front of us. Um, but at the same time, sometimes this can also have a huge cost to our personal well-being. And you use the word pressure, right? And you use the word dark times. But can you share how has the journey been with you personally? What is the dark side of uh, these strengths, optimism and being resilient? What is the other side of it? Yeah, sometimes it just, it, it can become so overwhelming. So on a Friday mm -hmm. uh, night, because I usually work about like 12 uh, hours a day as usual. And Sundays is also a work day and usually half of Saturday. But there are times when you're just like, oh my God. And you curl up in almost like a fetal position, just going, how much more of this? And things can I take? How much? And waking up at three in the morning going, holy guacamole, how am I going to pay bills? How am I going to manage this? How will we get through this? And yeah, so those are the kinds of challenging things. Yeah. And just never having any holidays and never thinking. Of, and it's always on your mind, mm. always on your mind thinking about it. So I think they're the challenges. They are the challenges. And also sometimes speaking to people. And raising, I have to say to people sometimes, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So there were some kind of child protection people out there saying, oh no, you don't need age verification. People should be able to explore. It might inhibit their exploration. And I'm like, that's saying you shouldn't have safety belts or car seats in the back seat of a car. 
the kids should, when you're driving, that they should just be able to be free. You're just thinking, what? So the, those can sometimes be challenging. Mm. When you're listening to people thinking, have you yeah. through properly, mm. right? Yeah. So how do you take care of yourself so that you can lead effectively? Right? If you're in a meeting, you want to be there in the meeting and not be stressed or not be overwhelmed. Yes. To take you away from what you are actually trying to do. How do you manage that balance and keep yourself, uh, let's say, level-headed uh, to show up day after day, week after week, month after week, to show up in your best capacity? When I moved to Malta, I live in a, a, a house that was built in the 16th century. And I live in an area that is so spellbindingly beautiful. Lots of movies are shot here and stuff. So what's wonderful is even if you have a crushing, difficult thing, you just, I, I get up, go out and walk around and just go, okay, this too will pass. Everything's mm -hmm. going to be okay. This is part of the journey. Keep yourself together. So th that's for my personal well-being. And then for keeping the team upbeat and together, I think it's really important as a leader to lead on the basis of what's best for your team and looking after them. So there's one team member, for example, who is not a morning person, just definitely not a morning person. So I'm like, okay, we don't have to be here in the morning and we're all working remotely. So it's just creating that sense of trying to lead by creating that sense of we're in this together. I respect each and every one of you as an individual. And I want to build something and a corporate culture where that where there's respect like that and supporting people and making sure that they're working normal hours and taking time. When I say normal hours, that they're not overworking. They can yeah. start at a day or as, as one of mm. you. Just making that. And then also because if we get a knockback or and we've put a lot of work into something, making sure that I look after their mental well-being. Thank you for sharing that. I think there are three key things which I would like to highlight, right? One is uh, the surroundings and that certainly helps to take your mind away. Uh, and we might not all be living in Malta, but I think everybody can find a part of nature or some green area or some beautiful area where they can step out, take a walk, get some fresh air and get some perspective. And even that, that's the second thing, like to get your body moving allows no matter how busy or how overwhelming your days is, get your body moving is always uh, like uh, allowing you to take care of those chemicals in your body to make sure that in the next meeting, in the next conversation, you are uh, at your best. And I think yeah. the, the third thing which I would like to say, right, it's so important to take care of others. That's what you mentioned, I think, because many times uh, giving uh, as a leader, giving and taking care of others allows us to feel uh, okay or feel better ourselves. Paradoxical, but I think leaders uh, understand it, especially those who have a service-oriented mindset. Many times giving or serving or helping somebody kind of fulfills us, gives us that peace. And I think that was, that's what I was listening as you were sharing, right? That to taking care of others' mental well-being, taking care of others' work pressures uh, allows you to actually calm down rather than like continuously be overwhelmed. So thank you that's for sharing that. So if you could wake up uh, like tomorrow morning having uh, any new ability or skill, what would that be? A ton of money. What? <laughs> so, I get, so I get invested in this, right? I would love that. I'd love the freedom to be able to do that and hire and bring in the, the extraordinary people that I'm working with. That would be fantastic. That would remove a massive mm. burden from my shoulders. And then you probably were, didn't want me to give a materialistic answer, but that's a genuine, that's what I need right now. Mm. 
if I hadn't, so your question for me as a person is, yeah, yeah, for you, I think, and uh, like specifically, if you talk about money, like what ability or skill would help you get that or get there faster? I think we, I've done my investor deck. I don't know how many, that's the other thing for it. You do the same stuff over and over again, but it's improving it at all times. What keeps me going is I imagine in three to five years time, I want us all as a, to look back and think, what in the name of God were we thinking, letting kids go just anywhere on the internet? Why didn't we understand that the full extent and nature of the harms and collectively call for more? The service that, we've, that we're developing right now, I think it'll just become like, it reminds me of way back in 2005 when we were like saying social networking, social media, we're so unused to it. And now it's just an integral part of our lives, yeah. part of the fabric of lives. So I think that what keeps me going is having that vision that it just will be normal that mm. the platforms will know the ages of your kids and you as a parent will understand what platforms they're on and will hold platforms to account if they aren't, if mm. kids are to negative content. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that powerful vision of the future. I think what I can see is that there are leaders who lead their companies. There are leaders who lead their teams, but what you are doing is so much beyond that. So you might be running and building up an organization, but uh, like your vision for leadership is so much beyond that, so much for the world, for the ecosystem out there. Uh, and that's going to be your impact as well. So thank you for sharing that, that vision of what in the future. Thank you. Uh, as well, yeah. And as we wrap this up, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur, especially, let's say, a female entrepreneur who have a big vision, who want to see the world a bit different in mm -hmm. small or big ways, but they like, deal with all of these challenges. Like you said, the two-person, it's not just in funding, it shows up everywhere. What advice would you give somebody who has that desire, but they, they are finding it difficult to deal with uh, like just the challenges of this world? Oh my goodness. I would say believe in yourself, believe in your mission. That's really core. You will experience knockbacks. It will be tough. And at the beginning, I used to take that very personally and be like really hurt and feel like I'd failed and I had let my team down. And it was like, was, mm. what should I do now? And it can, can be incapacitating at the beginning. Now, a few years on, I realized, okay, that knockback, it's not personal. It doesn't mean that our product isn't going to work. It, Right. You have to get that perspective. Some, you said the word perspective. It's really important. So to be able to almost have that armor around mm. you, I know what I want to achieve. You must listen. There are times when it's really important to listen, especially when you're talking to your potential clients to understand what their needs are and maybe pivot sometimes. Yeah. Surround yourself with advisors, good advisors, clever people. People are very willing to help and support you. So find people who are smarter than you, who've got a depth of expertise in an area that you don't have, pull them around you and get the mm. support that you need. And then have the perspective. It, it takes time. It's hurtful at the beginning when you get knockbacks, but to keep that in perspective, but essentially at your core, to believe in yourself, believe in your project and the bad things that you can take every knockback, there's something that you can learn from that. Mm. And then, so if you see challenges as an opportunity to learn, then it makes it a very different uh, kind of process. Took me a while to learn that and understand that, but you can become more powerful and resilient 
once you internalize that. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I think we spoke about optimism earlier. We spoke about resilience earlier. But until you can believe in yourself, you cannot be optimistic. You cannot be resilient, right? So thank you for connecting the dots, right? Because that's the source of all your leadership. That's the source of all your optimism and resilience. Uh, because uh, otherwise you try to like fight, get into fighting the world uh, and lose yourself in the process. But thank you for that wisdom that you can always come back to yourself and see where are you not trusting yourself? Where are you not believing yourself? And if you can do, then any challenge on the outside becomes easier, becomes uh, like less challenging or less burdensome than if you're not believing in yourself. Thank you for like connecting the dots here. And before we end, anybody who is listening who wants to reach out to you or find out more about what you're up to, what is the best way for them to do? So you can reach me on email, Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, at trustelevate.com. That's trust, T-R-U-S-T-E-L-E-V-A-T-E. That would Thank be you. wonderful. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you for sharing this. And I will make sure to include these in the show notes. And as we end, I would like to wish you and your team all the best in trying to create a very different world. Thank you. Thank you. And it's a real honor and a privilege to be invited to speak. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Choosing Leadership with Sumit Gupta. I choose leadership every time I record this podcast. And I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction. Not just for yourself, but for everybody around you. If you got something out of this episode, would you share this episode on social media? And if you know somebody who would be a great guest, can you tag them on social media to let them know about the show? And if you are a leader who wants to acknowledge how far you have come and have big dreams for the future, please reach out to me to be a guest on this podcast. And I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. This is what I do most naturally, to lovingly and gently provoke you, to help you see your own light, to help you see what you are already capable of. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and it means a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to deployyourself.com and subscribe to my newsletter or follow me on LinkedIn. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality. And I want to thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved and you matter. This is Sumit. Until next time, keep choosing leadership.